Okay. What? Yeah, sure. Here you go. Okay. All right. Any questions? Yes, Greg. Oh, yes. Terrible. And uh, your message didn't clear that up. <laughs> uh, I understand. Uh, you said this wasn't about salvation, and yet it has to be an integral part of, oh, yeah. of, of the whole thing. I don't understand how a person can be saved, and then if you're simply talking about bearing fruit, uh, then, then I, I guess I get it. But if, I mean, the implication was that if you're not bearing fruit, if you don't persevere, then you weren't saved uh, in the first place. I understand fully that God saves us. Yes. Uh, we don't, we can't, and, and I also understand we can't lose our salvation. Yes. And so, so this whole parable implying that if you don't bear fruit to the end, then somehow you're you're not saved, and and so I'm trying to fit those all together. Yes, and I'm not I'm not being able to do it. Sure, no, no, that's that's a great question, and truly that is, of course, the tension. Because to put it simply, there are parallel biblical truths that you want to ring loudly. On the one hand, salvation is a free gift by grace through faith alone, not a result of works. Everyone is called. No one will be turned away. Um, the Son of Man will receive all who come to Him. He will turn none away. None will be lost. We also firmly believe that, that once saved, those who are truly born again, they, they will persevere. You can't lose your salvation. Absolutely. Amen. That's, that's truth number one. We believe that firmly. Truth number two, people who live like hell go there. And I can, I can back both those statements up with scads of texts. Just think of all the times Paul says, I warn you now, as I warned you then, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there's a tension there. You're not saved by works. People with these works will perish. And we've got to resolve that tension somehow. And, and of course, there's two ways to resolve that tension, at least. There's, I'm going to suggest a third. One is to believe you can lose your salvation. You, you're going to really resonate with those passages warning you about the way you're living. And you've got, you know, denominations that believe you can lose your salvation. Well, this today I'm saved, but I might not be saved next week. And that's one way to resolve that tension. The other way to resolve the tension is to ignore or minimize the warnings and really just emphasize, I, I, I've said this before, but I think once saved, always saved is a, is a bastardized half-truth version of the Reformation doctrine <laughs> of the perseverance of the saints. I'd flip it around to once believing, always believing. The, the, the Reformation doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that the good shepherd will cause his flock through his shepherding to persevere in faith to the end and overcome. It's not, in other words, it's not simply you can't lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation because you will be shepherded in your faith. Um, if, if, you're, if you're not being shepherded, I mean, okay, go to Hebrews. Hebrews is where I'll go to answer this, but let me, um, and then we can... I, I get that this is tough, Greg, and even that whole tension of those two things can be tricky. But let me try to back up both propositions pretty clearly. Um, verse 7 of chapter 12, uh, verse 5. 
You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you start going off crazy and bearing bad fruit and you're his son, what's he going to do? He's going to discipline you. He's going to spank you. He's done that to me in my life. I've seen him do that in other people's lives. And he's going to, the shepherd's going to leave the 99 and go after the sheep. So if you've got a sheep that just sort of set off into the sunset, into the woods on their own, and no shepherd went to get them, what conclusion do you come to? They're not part of his flock. That, that's, that's part of the thing. So you've got these means. You, they didn't lose their salvation, but if, if they're his flock and he didn't go shepherd them, then he's a bad shepherd. I don't think you want to say that. Um, so let me go back to Hebrews chapter 3. And here's, here's the tension. I'll, I'll show you the tension in one paragraph. Okay? One paragraph. And the challenge is to be able to say both the opening and closing sentence of the first paragraph of chapter 3. The challenge will be to say both. You'll either gravitate to be able to say one or the other. The challenge is to say what both says. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now that's pretty strong, confident language that he's writing to Christians, right? Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Okay? We want to be able to say that. We don't want to run around. Whatever we think about perseverance, we don't want to say, well, maybe we're not, maybe we are. You know, and we can't greet each other as Christians. Greg's a Christian, I think. You know, you got to be able to say, holy brothers, participate in a heavenly calling. It's good to see you guys. <coughs> and be able to say what he says in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now get this, the inspired author of Scripture puts himself into the if clause now. He includes himself in this conditional statement, which is remarkable. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, so... In one paragraph, he says both the truths. You guys are saved, you're part of a heavenly calling, and you got to hold fast and make it to the end. In one paragraph. I, I get that there's tension there. The challenge is just to be biblical, and I, the Bible can speak both ways, and we need to learn to speak both ways. And the, the, I'm just trying to show first, before I try to resolve it, you see the opening sentence, the closing sentence, are kind of hitting both of those notes. Strong confidence. Brothers, God called you. And sisters, God called you. And we're his house if we make it firm to the end. We've got to persevere, right? You, okay. So this gets back, though, I think, to um, the closing message, part four of the Sermon on the Plain, which uh, you can look up on the archive. But that was the one that the four points were what you do reveals what you are, reveals your nature. What you do reveals your treasure or what you worship. What you do reveals what you believe. And what you do reveals your fate. And in each instance, Jesus at the close says a tree is known by its fruit. And literally in the Greek, it's the tree is known by what it does. The good tree does good fruit. The bad tree does bad fruit. Um, the emphasis, the overriding emphasis in that text is the doing. And we made it clear, doing doesn't make you an apple tree. 
Apple trees do apples. That's the whole, the, the flow, you can't flip the flow around, but the whole point is there's a continuity between the root and the fruit. And you can't see my heart, but you can see what I do. And over time, you can see what I am. And I think that's the same sort of logic. What, what are you? Well, what fruit do you bear? Are you, are you a thorn tree? Do you bear thorns? Are you a fig tree? Do you bear figs? Um, what? It's not thorn trees. There are no thorn trees for I did? Oh dear, okay. Figs, a bush. Fig bush, figs grown on a fig tree, thorn bush. It's not a cookie, mother, it's a fig newton. Sorry, um, anyway, sorry. Um, oh look, a rabbit, oh look, a distraction, okay. Um, and so that's the first point Jesus makes in Luke 6, is first identity, what you are. But then he goes to the good man out of the good treasure in his heart brings forth good. And now we're dealing with what, what's in the seat of the throne of your heart. That's going to reflect what you do. So now we can say what you do reveals what you worship or who your God is or, or what you treasure. And your actions reveal that. So, and that's part of what we're saying today. When the t- trials come, when it looks like you have to choose between keeping your, go- your job or being faithful to the Lord, we'll know what you worship by what you do. Fair enough? We'll know who God is, who your God is, when you have to choose between popularity and the Lord, when you have to choose between money and the Lord, when you have to choose between suffering and the Lord. We'll see what's sitting, and I'll see what's sitting on the throne of my life by what choices I make. That, that's, that's the logic, I, I believe. So the, I guess the problem is when it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian, it's very possible to think, oh, I love Jesus. I love him. You're really going to find out what you believe when it gets tough. And that's when all of a sudden you might find out all this time I worshipped and loved my safety and my comfort more than I love Jesus. So that when I had to choose between my safety and my comfort, I, I denied Christ and I denied the gospel and I denied Christian truth so that the world would love me and the world would, would make, would, would congratulate me. And there's plenty of churches that are doing that, that are agreeing with the spirit of the age, right? They're capitulating to the pressure and they are changing their doctrinal beliefs to fall in line with the spirit of the age and the wisdom of men. And okay, that they, we know what their God is and it's not the living God. Um, so that's the that's the, the sort of the shallow soil. What's your God? What's your idol? Comfort. I don't want to suffer. I don't want anything hard. I'll take Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And the challenge is, until the testing comes, you won't realize that that type of faith is spurious, vain, and worthless. I mean, I don't know if it feels tremendously different to be one or the other. Um, I don't know if you if you had a video camera watching Judas weeping as he regretted what he did and watching Peter weeping, I don't know if in that moment of weeping you could tell them apart. Which one's repentant and which one's not? Who's going to hang himself and who's going to go on and write two books of the Bible? you got to stand back and wait and see what they do. I, I, I don't know if you were watched Judas weeping, you'd be able to say, oh, he has a crocodile tears, he's full of it. I don't even know if they knew. Um, so the thorny soil then comes back to this tension that's in Scripture between you can't love the world and love God. And what Jesus is saying is ultimately that there will be a resolution. And I think the honest truth is in all of our hearts we recognize that struggle, that tug of war. If ultimately the love of this world takes over 
And again, it'll show up in actions. It's, it's, it's not this subtle, do I really love, like Demas forsook Paul. It's clear whose team he chose. Demas, at the end of the day, said, world. <coughs> He's weighing it out, world. And he goes. And the same thing, I think, would be true with us. If, if we're making decisions against the Lord for this world, if we're saying no to the Lord for the things of this world, then there's a very strong possibility your God is not the Lord, but the world. And watch out. There's, and the whole point of the parable is to warn us what's going to choke out faith and faithfulness, what's going to choke out fruit, what's going to, what's going to make us unproductive. Am I answering or just making it harder, Greg? You want to zero in? I got another hand over there, but I'll finish with you. Get the, get the mic. Hold on. No, I pr- appreciate everything you're saying. I guess the confusion comes from our understanding of what faith is. Yeah. So, so apparently you can have a semblance of faith that's not saving faith, yes. and then you lose that, or it, it doesn't ever, yes. it doesn't ever rise to salvation. Right. That's what I was. That's what I was trying to show from John eight. In John 8, twice we're told, while Jesus said these things, the Jews believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and by the end of the next paragraph, he's calling them sons of their father, the devil. Now, apparently, there's something that the text can refer to as faith that isn't faith, or not all faiths are the same. Um, the same thing happens in John 2. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed on him when they saw the works that he did, but he, for his part, did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. And then you've got James, the demons believe. Um, you've got uh, Simon Magus, Simon the sorcerer in Acts, believed. Even he believed. And then Peter says to him, your money perishes with you. I see that you're in the gall of iniquity and the, in the, of despair. There's a message on the sermon archive um, from way back that I can make available. I think it's there if you look for it. It's called, What is Saving Faith? And um, the first point is, that there's a couple of instances in the Bible that refer to something as faith that clearly these people are not in a right relationship with God. Clearly these people are not justified. And we deal with Simon the sorcerer. We deal with um, John 8 and John 2. We deal with James and the demons have a type of faith, right? And so my definition coming out of that, then what is faith? Here's my working definition. Faith is confidence and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can't separate them. You've got to have the right Jesus who died on a cross for your sins. Um, and that produces, it's not the good works, but this is, it produces obedience and following after him in our lives. That's faith. Faith is the Trust and confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ that causes us to obey and follow him. That, that's I, my best attempt to come at the biblical definition of faith. Um, so you want to distinguish it from the works, just as John distinguished repentance from the fruit of repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's not selling them, you have to do these things to be saved, but the assumption is there's a one-to-one correlation between faith and what you do in your life. That's the logic that, we're, that we wrestle with, is that the assumption is what you do reveals what you believe. The, the purpose of the parable, then, but however, yeah. would not be, hey, go out and bear more fruit. Oh, no. Oh, no. It, it's a report card. Well, it's a warning, and that's, that's, why the, the, and that's precisely why in, in each instance I tried to, what do you do? If this might be me in the first one, call on God to soften your heart. Not go do stuff. If you, uh, if you think you might be the shallow soil, what do you do? Count the cost. Look at square in the face. 
you know, that, that was the big thing for me. I had never counted the cost. I thought I was a Christian most of my life, and I wasn't. I mean, I, I was shallow. I was thorny. I was a thorny, shallow soil. It was both. It was like a double whammy. And I loved the world, and I didn't want to suffer. I didn't want to deny myself, and I loved the things of this world. And, and so I remember when, I, when the Lord drew me to salvation, looking square in the face, some of those hard sayings of Jesus, like, okay, am I willing to follow him? And I remember clearly counting the cost and looking that square in the face. And I think it'd be far better to do that now while you hear his word and while you have your senses about you than wait till you're suddenly put to the test and in that crucible have to make that decision. Wait, wait till it, you know what I mean? Wait till the trial and the storm has come. In other words, sink your roots down deep now before the drought, before the storm that comes. Deal with that now. Again, I'm not calling on you to do anything. It's not go do stuff. It's, it's really look this in the face and, and if you, you know, and, and pray that the Lord would, would give you a deeper faith and going deeper. And then if you're thorny um, soil, the so what was be focused and vigilant. And in no instance am I saying go do stuff um, other than the attitude of the heart. Like be alert, be on your guard. Your adversary, the devil, roams around like a lion seeking whom he will to devour. Jesus is saying be, be careful. You got to be in the world, but you want to be in it, but not of it. Be careful as you're in the world. It can entrap you. The snares can wrap around your ankle. The, the thorns can jag and take hold of you. The hooks can go in and you can become trapped. Be alert. Be vigilant. Focus on Jesus, the high priest and perfecter of our faith. So I, I don't think the cure in any instance is do stuff. In no instance is it go, go, go do stuff. But in every instance, there's something to be done. There's calling on the Lord. There's a cost to be counted. There's, there's a keeping yourself focused and maybe getting rid of distractions that would be the remedy for all three dangers. Um, is, that, is that what you're getting at? Or I'm sorry. Okay. Greg can be inscrutable at times. He's just sitting there. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Um, yes. Yes. Renee. Renee. Um. With true believers, it seems like there's a humility and a questioning of themselves, which is appropriate yeah. and leads at this point in this discussion to, will I stand when I'm persecuted? Will I oh. deny Christ if they're threatening to saw me in half? Right. Um, and so I just want to encourage everyone that it's not us and of ourselves. It is God right. who gives that. And, and really, I agree with everything you said. It's pursuing Christ. And what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Mm. Christ prayed for Christ Peter. prayed for Peter. Yeah. yeah. And Christ is yeah. at the right hand of God, interceding on yeah. our behalf continuously. And let me give you one other helpful word. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, makes this observation. He, he says it negatively, because Screwtape Letters is a senior devil giving a junior devil tips on how to tempt a human. So everything's polarized. Everything you need to flip upside down to get what he's getting at. But basically, the point is this. And it's a biblical point. Lamentations 3, your mercies are new every morning, right? So every morning, you got fresh grace. Make it biblical. In Luke, when we get to a little later in Luke, sufficient is the day for the trouble thereof. Don't be anxious. you got enough trouble today. So you got a certain amount of trouble today, and you got a certain amount of grace today. Now here's the danger Lewis talks about. The danger is this, to take today's grace and imagine tomorrow's trial, and to try to bear tomorrow's trial with today's grace. And then you become convinced, oh, if they, if they tried to threaten to saw me in half, which is what we think they did to Isaiah, um, Hebrews 11 talks about people who are sawn in two. 
Um, and, and the tradition is that he crawled into a hollowed out log to hide and they just <laughs> cut him in half. Um, the grace you have the day people are going to try to saw you in half is not the grace you have today. And God has not made any promise to give you grace for imagined trials and for anticipated difficulties. Jesus flat out says, you, you got enough stuff to worry about right in front of you. God's grace is sufficient for that. So if you feel like, I could never do that. Well, not with today's grace you couldn't. God didn't give you the grace for that. And so Lewis in the, in the screw tape letters talks about how the screw tape now telling his his nephew, Wormwood, how to torment his patient, that's how he refers to the human, by have him imagine 10 or 12 different scenarios and have him walk around under that weight, not even realizing that they all can't happen. You know, what if I die of cancer? What if the plane crashes? What if, you know, they can't all happen. But you're walking around under the weight of all of these things with today's grace. And you feel like you're going to get crushed. There is no promise that today's grace will be for that. So on the day when that happens, God will give grace. And that's what we're trusting in. I mean, so you may well feel like there's no way I could do that. The, 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 the challenge is just, Lord, when that comes, give me the grace to be faithful. And, and if you don't and I don't trust in it, I won't be faithful. I mean, it's not, again, looking to yourself. I, I, I mean, who's the only example of that? It's Peter. If they all deny you, I never will. That's not the answer. The answer is clinging. Okay, let me, one other, one other little Jeremyism. Well, this is, this is a word picture that, that I, I like. I think people mistakenly think the Christian life is about being knights for some feudal lord. And we go out and we fight dragons and we get in combat and we rescue the maiden and we bring back tribute and our spoils to the castle. You know, like the cat that leaves the dead mouse at the front door. You know, it's like, look what I did for you. And I suspect that when we do that, God looks at it like we look at the dead mouse. We used to have a cat that would live, give us peace offerings periodically. You know, um, we just find this dead rat in the front steps. Look what I did for you, all this. Um, but I think people think that's going to be the Christian life. And we got to go out and we got to conquer battles and kingdoms and fight dragons for the Lord. Here's my analogy of the Christian life. I'm walking through the woods... And my two-year-old son is scared because he hears something in the woods and he's just clinging to my leg and I'm just walking while he's just wrapping himself around my leg. That's, that's the Christian life, as I understand it. Um, and so I, I don't think the answer is get tough and be... St- no, cling tightly to the... Like, I'm really scared of what might happen if persecution grows, but I know you've got the grace and the strength, so I'm just going to cling to you so that if it comes, I'll be okay in you. That, that's the answer. The answer is not like, you know, suck it up and bring it on. You know, that's Peter's approach, and it doesn't work so hot. Um, that makes sense at all? Okay. We got five minutes. Another question? Over here? We got a question over here? Where? Where? Stacy, where? Wendell had his hand up. Well, but Stacy was pointing. He was letting me know. Somebody over there. If it's Wendell, give it to like somebody else. <laughs> This is a typical response because Jeremy normally overlooks me when I raise my hand up anyway. But uh, (laughs) the only thing, you've answered everything. But I would submit to people that that's the only thing you can do. And I think that the thing, um, we cannot in our finite minds imagine how we're going to react in certain situations. Sawing in half. Uh, We watch 
or have heard about beheadings and and, that, and and obviously we put ourselves in those situations thinking I don't know if I could do that I guess what Jeremy is saying we don't have to know all we need to know is part of the salvation to tie it in what Greg was saying as well uh, I, I think one part that we tend to miss is the uh, self-examination that mm. we as Christians are supposed to do to try to uh, you know, I can remember when I accepted Christ my Savior way back when, when I was 14 years old, and often I've gone back to that time and thinking, you know, I, I don't know if I was saved or not. It doesn't really matter where I am at now because it's where I am now is what matters. Yeah. And you only yeah. get to that point by self-examining by God's, by, by what Christ has said. If you do these things, if you're, you know, in thorny yeah. soil or, or whatever, Am I doing those things that kind of reassures me that, yes, I, I am saved. Where am I at now as opposed yeah. to where I was before? I don't think you can lose your salvation. I think that's scriptural also. But I think the point is is that we need to continue to do those things that will please God day to day and not look at it in the future as, am I going to be able to do this or, or that? And, and to continue to self-examine ourselves because if we don't do that on a regular basis, then all those things that that Christ is talking about will sneak into our lives and all of a sudden start subtly leading us away. Uh -huh. So I, I think that's why it's so important for us to do that. It, it's really made a difference, I know, in my life. And, and, I, and yeah. I think that uh, when I finally understood that, I thought, you know, that's, that's what I have to do. It, it isn't a, oh, a, a year I'll, I'll look at it, you know, but I think... Yeah. Frequently. Well, no, and open up to 2 Corinthians 13. Um, and again, th this can be something that people can obsess on, and this can be something that people can ignore, and the balance is somewhere in between. Um, but it is absolutely biblical. Paul, writing to a church of self-identified Christians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we'll close on this, unless there's another, was there another question? Because I can sp try to be speedy. Who? Oh, so wait, I'll, I'll be fast. I'll just read this. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? And the implication is if Christ is in you, you're going to live a little differently. Like, you realize by claiming to be a Christian, you're claiming Christ lives in you. Okay, test, test that periodically. Test that hypothesis unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So no, does, does Jesus want us walking around every moment, you know, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian, I'm testing, test? No. Does he want us never doing this because I know I meant it 10 years ago? No. Periodic self-examination. This is also one of the reasons why the local church is so important because the temptation for me is I might too strictly or too loosely judge myself, but as others see growth in my life and encourage me, one of the things that gives me is a greater assurance of my salvation when others testify to God's grace working through me. It's encouraging. We encourage each other. This is hard to do alone. It's too easy to just give yourself an, an A grade, you know? Or to, or, to, or to be tortured under such scrutiny of conscience that you're never going to perform well enough. And again, it's just back to, are you growing? Are you growing? It's not a bar that you reach. Are you bearing any fruit? Am I more like Jesus today than I was a year ago? Or am I less like what I, you know what I mean? So it's not about a bar. It's about a movement and a growth. 
Anyway, yes, JP has a question. And we need a microphone, JP. You got to play by the rules. So why do you think Luke put the parable of the sower where he put it in the flow of his narrative? Well, I think what we're both... Go back to Luke 8. That's a great question. Go back to Luke 8. I think Luke's been hammering this point for the last actual couple of chapters. I think that the point of the parable of the sower is nearly identical to the point of the Sermon on the Plain, ending with the fruit, fruitfulness. In fact, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and check that out if you have any questions, because I, I think it's the same point. The insistence on the fruit reveals the root, the fruit reveals the treasure, the fruit reveals the fate, the fruit reveals the faith. Um, and that 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 one-to-one correspondence without any deviation between the fruit and what's going on, on the inside. And Jesus warning his disciples there. I mean think about it. He's got he's got in, in Luke six, he goes down and he has got a look at the introduction. It's verse seventeen of six. He came down with them, stood in a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. So you've got a group that is ginormous that's broken into two subgroups, disciples and the crowd. And he's not speaking to the crowd. He, look at verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, so the entire Sermon on the Plain is said in the hearing of the crowd to the disciples. And then to the disciples, he says, Luke 6, 46. The climax of the sermon why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because what you do reveals what you believe. And so he's warning or helping a bunch of his disciples know how to measure and evaluate themselves. It starts with the two ways, blessed, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. So like, if this is true about you, feel good. If this is not true, if this is true about you, watch out. That's how it starts with the sort of classic wisdom to his disciples, Telling disciples, some of you woe and some of you blessed. And then he tells them, here's the ethic I demand. And then he closes his sermon by saying, and here's how you know whose team you're on. Here's how you know whether you're a true disciple. What do you do? And that's how it ends. And ultimately it gets to eschatology because there's this coming judgment and some people's houses will survive and some will get knocked flat. And in every instance, the doing demonstrates the faith. The doing demonstrates the destiny. All of that, right? So so we've seen this this like warning of like you could be deceived. There's guys who are cheering for Jesus now who are going to be cheering for his death later. Okay, so then we we pause and we get the deal with the um, with the John the Baptist, which really is the center of chapter seven, the events that set it up, and then the the woman who comes in and cleans Jesus' hair, which is really sort of the uh, the example, right? And you've got. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and here's a sinner. Don't Blessed is the one who's not offended by me, and Simon the Pharisee is offended. And so we see in very clear form that, okay. And then we got a new division, because eight begins with another time marker, and eight begins with another summary statement. And so the development of thought now is, after introducing Jesus in chapter 4, his ministry, as the Isaiah 61 Messiah, he's also got this ministry of judgment and hardening going on. There's now the second edge or the second theme of his ministry. He also stands in another Isianic 
Is that a word? Another Isaiah thread. He's not just the one who fulfills Isaiah 61. He also stands in Isaiah 6's tradition and trajectory. And now we're getting these calls to respond. And look how they back up. Um, we'll deal with this next week, but look at, look at I mean, he's, Luke stacks them. This is the first of three. We have this parable, then we have the lamp under a jar. Look at, look at Jesus and his mother and brothers. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, verse 19, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and, and do it. Luke's making a point. Luke's making a big point about the response of faith. Um, and as he's stacking these up, and I think you'll see also the parable about the jar and the lamp under basket saying the same thing. So, so Luke is warning that there are those who, because of idols in their heart, are not going to hear and they're not going to see. And I think the whole point is we can tell who's who by what they do, which gets us back, and we'll close right here. I use this example over and over again. Eve's in the garden. There's two interpretations of this tree. One says it's death. One says it's life. One says it will expo- you know, you'll die in the day you eat of it. The serpent, no, you'll be like God. Who does Eve believe? We know who she believes because we know what she did. And how useless it would be for Eve to say, no, I trusted God. I believed God. Well, no, you didn't. Sure I did. No, you, you ate the fruit. You believed the serpent. And that, and that's the assumption of the logic. What you believe will always, 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 always result in what you do. I only, oh, it's only six? I thought it was supposed to be seven. Okay. On that note, we've gone over. I'll let you go. Thank you. God bless.